My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this if you're on Facebook, but somebody gets a good idea and then a thousand somebodies copy the idea. Um, if you saw my meme for church today, it had a little picture of Yoda and it said, set the clocks forward, you must, or late to church you will be. Well, if you look, I think it got shared off of my personal page five or six times. People said, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to steal that meme. And that's what memes are for. Well, there's another one that was very popular in the last couple of weeks. And it was called the three most difficult things to say. Have you seen that one? Well, one of them said that the three most difficult things to say were, I was wrong, I'm sorry, and Worcestershire sauce. <laughs> so then I got tickled and I looked up the phonetic uh, reading for, and that's how you say it if you're not sure, because it looks like it should be Worcestershire Shire, it's Worcestershire. Try it with me. Worcestershire. If you don't remember anything else today, next time somebody says, hand me the Worcestershire, you can say, Dr. Madison taught us that it's Worcestershire. That's it. One of them said, I love you is the hardest thing to say. And that annoyed me because if you're doing it right, it should be the easiest thing to say. We talked about that when we did the five love languages on Thursday nights, that if you are making deposits in your loved one's love bank and speaking their love language, they're going to have no choice but to say, I love you. So this is the list I settled on. The three most difficult things to say are, number one, I was wrong. Number two, I'm sorry. And number three, I need help. And isn't it interesting that all three of those are contained in the gospel? Luke 15, 11 to 32 is the story of the prodigal son. And you might remember that the prodigal son went off to a far country, squandered his inheritance, was serving corn cobs to the pigs. And then it says he came into his right mind. He had one of those moments that we all have. We go, oh, Remember the old, I could have had a V8? It's that moment. I, I could have had a V8. I've come into my right mind and he says this. I am going to go home where my father's servants have food and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It's hard to say you were wrong. But if you are a sinner, and the Bible makes that clear, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you are a sinner, then you were wrong. You have said the wrong words at one time. Or, or in your Christian walk, you've, you've left the path. You've committed wrong actions or a wrong attitude. And I want you to hear this. Sin can be on purpose. Sin can be by accident. Sin can come through ignorance. You can still sin even if you didn't know it was a sin. And we are called as brothers and sisters in Christ to correct one another and say, I don't know if you know that, but that's against the law of God. 
The first thing that we need to do, the hardest thing perhaps is to say, I was wrong and admit that we're sinners. Maybe the second hardest thing is this, to say, I'm sorry. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But he can't cleanse us from the unrighteousness until we recognize that we've been unrighteous, that we've left the path, that we've committed one of those sins. That's why it's a process. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. And I, I need you to know that pulling on your shirt and saying, my bad, does not count. Your confession to God needs to be like the detective in the TV show. When the guy finally confesses, Gibbs, because I love NCIS, Gibbs takes the, 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 the uh, legal pad and the pencil, and what's he do? He slides it across the table. He says, write it down. I am not saying that you need to go home and make a list of your sins. I'm saying that in your confession to God, you need to be specific. You can't throw up those, Lord, forgive me of all my sins. It doesn't work that way. That does not demonstrate a contrite heart. A contrite heart says, oh my goodness, I was wrong and I'm sorry for these very specific. In your prayer, I'm encouraging you to be clear, contrite, and exhaustive. Now here's the good news. Once your sin is confessed, and you are cleansed from all unrighteousness, you do not need to confess that sin again. Amen. Oh, thank you. We'll take that. <laughs> that used to be my dad's job at the, at, at the church where I grew up. He had the amen corner all to himself. But isn't that wonderful news? Now, the enemy wants you to feel consistently guilty and convicted of sins for which God has already forgiven you. I want you to hear that. Once you make this exhaustive list, once you look to heaven, once you claim the gift of God's forgiveness, it is forgiveness. It is as far as the east is from the west. Now, when I was growing up, we had a dog. I loved this dog. The dog's name was Lad. It was a very creative name. And Lad was a collie shepherd. And Lad had one of those long collie tails. Tails. And you know what he liked to do? He liked to chase his tail. In fact, I like to help him chase his tail. So if Lad was just standing there, I would tug on his tail, he would look around, and then he would chase and chase and chase. Did he ever catch his tail? Never. That's how far the east is from the west. Once the sin is forgiven, it's gone. Which leads us to our next hardest thing to say, which may be actually the hardest thing to say, I need help. Now I want you to know that if you were Nicodemus's next door neighbor, you would never think that Nicodemus needed help. In verse one, uh, he, in verse one of chapter three in the Gospel of John, he's called a ruler or a prince of Egypt. Now, what do you know about rulers or princes? Uh, not of Egypt, of, of Israel. Sorry, my mistake. What do you know about rulers and princes? They got something we don't got. 
money. There you go. He did not have financial worries. He was a ruler and a prince. In verse 10, he's called a master of Israel. Again, he was a doctor, not a medical doctor like Luke, but he was an educated man. He was respected. In verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 50 of the Gospel of John, we know that he's a Pharisee, so he had a job. So not only was he a ruler and rich and well-educated, he had a job. He was a Pharisee, a teacher of Israel. And I don't know about you, but I like being a teacher. And one of the things I like being, about being a teacher is on the 15th and the 30th of every month between September and January, they pay me for being a teacher. And in verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 39, Nicodemus is present at the interment of Jesus, and he's the one who bought the spices. Again, he was well off. So, you're living next door to Nicodemus. He's driving a Mercedes, and you're driving a Yugo. Or you might just have a, a donkey with a limp, right? He was an educated, well-off, well-respected man. And yet he comes to Jesus and says, I need help. Nicodemus learned that you couldn't trust the religion, you couldn't trust the money, you couldn't trust the position, you couldn't trust your employment. You needed to find a relationship with God. And that's why he went to Jesus. I don't understand, Nicodemus is saying. Why aren't I fulfilled? If people were to make a list of the things that would make them happy and content, I have all of them. And yet I'm still spiritually empty. Nicodemus said, I need help. He was educated. He was religiously passionate. According to the order of the day, he was pure, a leader. And yet he gave that all up to become a follower of Christ. It reminds me of what Bill Hybel says. Bill Hybel says, religion is what you do. Christianity says it's already been done. Even after making spiritual amends, I want you to hear this. Even after going to the temple, which is what Nicodemus would have done, and sacrificing, we talked about that last week, to make amends with God and with man and to confess his sins, he still felt empty and the burden of sin. Let me put it to you this way with three quick examples. Michael Jordan tells a story that he was shooting foul shots with his son, and his son was shooting and he made the first foul shot. And he said, you're at 100%. You're 100% foul shooter. And then his son made another and another and another. And everybody was feeling really good. And then his son missed the fifth foul shot. Well, that makes you only an 80% foul shooter. And no matter how many times you hit that foul shot, you will never get back to 100%. That's the way sin is. No matter how good you attempt to be, no matter how many sacrifices Nicodemus took to the temple, he could never get back to 100%. Bill Hybels also says this. He says, well, 
when I'm talking to non-Christians and they say, well, what, what about my life? I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I don't rob. I don't steal. Very much like the rich young ruler. I, I follow the laws. The police aren't chasing me around. He says, well, let's put it this way. What if you needed 100 points to get into heaven? He says, well, Mother Teresa gets 95. He said, can we agree? Mother Teresa gets 95 points. He said, uh, Hitler, Mussolini, they get 10 points. And you are someplace in between. He says, and no matter how many points you earn, the Bible makes it very clear that we will never make 100 points. It's the same idea as Michael Jordan in the foul shots, just turned around a little bit. Or I, I like when I'm sharing the gospel with teenagers to talk about, uh, there used to be a Bible track called The Bridge to Life. And uh, it draws a big canyon and man is on one side and God is on the other. And it talks about all the things you could do to try and traverse that canyon to get to God. You might try to earn your way into heaven or learn your way into heaven or buy your way into heaven or try your way into heaven. But no matter what you do, you'll never make it across that chasm. And then the last picture in the Bible tract puts a cross across the chasm. It's called the bridge to life. You can't earn, learn, buy, or try your way into heaven. Jesus does and did it for you. So let's go back to the scripture today. It says, as Moses lifted up. Now, you might remember the story. The people of Israel had once again, and I mean that once again, because they did it many times, disobeyed and disrupted their relationship with God. He wasn't happy with them, and he sent a plague. And God says to Moses, put a bronze serpent on the staff and hold it up, and anybody who looks at it will be healed, will be saved. I want you to hear this, especially if you're taking notes. The Israelites couldn't do it themselves. Just like we as Christians on this side of the cross can't do it ourselves. As Moses lifted up. Now remember, this is only in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. As he's telling the story, if you're reading with a, an open mind, you don't yet know the end of the story. You don't know that the cross is there. You don't know that the resurrection is there. You are just hearing the beginning of the story. And he says, as Moses lifted up, God so loved the world. You can't do it on your own. Jesus willingly went to the cross for us. You may see the t-shirt or the bumper sticker. I've seen it several ways. It says, I asked Jesus how much he loved me. He held out his arms and said, this much. In verse 17, Jesus is not condemning. That's the verse I wish we all, we all learned John 3.16 when we were kids, but we, we don't often learn 17. For God sent his son not into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. Jesus is not a condemning Savior. Jesus is a saving Savior. So I want you to think about this. We're going to finish up with two more things. One is this. It's called the buttonhole principle. Now, I get up early in the morning, and my beautiful wife, who works nights, does not get up early in the morning. 
And there have been on rare occasions when I got up and I got dressed in the dark. And then I got to school and I found out that I had missed the first button. And if you miss the first button, there's no way to go back and fix it unless you do what? Unbutton all the buttons and start over at the beginning. It's hard to catch your right. It's hard to come at right if you start out wrong. Well, if you're going to be a Christian, starting out right means acknowledging three things. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I need help. My seminary professor said this, until a person truly experiences salvation through Christ, they will have the perspective of the law. A 15-year-old girl went to a church conference in Oklahoma, and she was short and a bit overweight. She was not too attractive, and she'd been crippled from birth. And one night a dance was held at the conference. She simply put her crutches on a chair nearby, and she sat down in another chair and spent the evening watching the others dance, all the time smiling, but who knows the pain that was going on in her heart. Norman Neves, who tells the story, says, the music was the kind that peels the skin off your face and overloads your auditory nerves. And the floor was full of teenagers moving to the rhythm. And then a very special thing happened. In the middle of the dance program in the evening, a slow number was played. And a tall 16-year-old boy went over to the girl and held out his hand and said, Please, dance with me. She looked up with unbelieving surprise and a smile quivering on her face, and she said, Yes. And together they began dancing. The young man held her hand tightly, and she held on to him tightly. Thus she stumbled and fall. It was a beautiful sight to behold. Later that evening, one of the leaders went to the young man and told him how special he thought it was for him to do this and how much he admired him. He said, as the two of you were dancing, I noticed that she whispered something in your ear. Do you mind if I ask what it was? The teenager said, you're not going to believe this. But she said that this was the first time anyone had ever asked her to dance in her entire life. That's a picture of grace. All grace. Can you imagine how that woman felt unattractive, crippled, never having been asked to dance? And then Prince Charming came and it happened. Can you imagine? If so, then you're beginning to understand grace. She felt ugly. She felt worthless. She felt unwanted. And that one dance changed her perspective. Jesus makes us righteous by his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus invites you to dance. Amen.